Philippians chapter 1 this morning. I'm going to ask you if you have your Bible, let's turn there together. Philippians chapter 1. And we are continuing our study now through the book of Philippians. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, just three verses here, but a lot that Paul has packed into these three verses. And if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Again, the Apostle Paul writing while imprisoned in Rome, and he says to the church at Philippi, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And you can be seated this morning. I'd like to share with you this morning from this passage on the blueprint of Christian prayer. The blueprint of Christian prayer. Now, Paul, earlier in the opening verses of this chapter, and we looked at last week in verse 4, reminded the church at Philippi that he was always praying for them. He gave them this assurance. He said, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. This church was one that was constantly on the mind of the Apostle Paul, and he was remembering them frequently in his time for prayer. Basically, what he was saying to them is, I'm praying for you regularly. And as we look at this passage this morning, not only does Paul tell them that he's praying for them regularly, but what now he looks at in these verses, in verses 9 through 11, is the subject of his prayer. And the reason it's so important to understand this is because what Paul is helping us to see is that as Christians, we should be actively praying for ourselves, but mostly actively praying for one another. Because it's through the prayers for one another that we really see the transformative work of God in our own life, because we see God operating and moving in other people's lives, and it encourages us. I think we have a tendency as Christians in, in, a modern, in the modern world to be more concerned about prayers for ourselves than we are about prayer for others. And I think the picture we see in the New Testament is much more a prayer for others and then prayers for ourselves. Paul had over and over again emphasized the idea of this continual attitude of prayer. 1 Thessalonians, he said to be praying without ceasing. In the book of Romans chapter 12, he talks about being devoted to prayer. In the church to Ephesus, he tells him with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So what we want to learn this morning from this passage is not just how we should pray for ourselves, but how we should pray for one another. And what Paul does in this prayer, not only is he praying for the church of Philippi, but he's basically laying out a blueprint of not only prayer, but a blueprint of the Christian life as well. Because if we take these prayer points that Paul gives to the church of Philippi, it paints a perfect picture of how the Christian life should be practically lived out. Now, I want you to notice there very quickly, I want you to just breeze back through those verses with me because I want you to notice something before we even begin. Paul says that your love may abound in knowledge and discernment, that you may approve things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and the praise of God. Notice what you don't see Paul praying for in this passage. You do not see Paul praying for the financial benefit of the church at Philippi that the individual Christians would somehow be prosperous in wealth. You don't see him praying for their safety. You don't see him praying for uh, material possessions. You see him praying for these true, deep, and lasting spiritual concerns. Because these are the most important things that we can pray for with one another. It might be nice to be financially secure, but guess what? Those things can be taken away in a moment. If we are spiritually secure, those things can never be taken away. If we know in whom we trust and we know in whom we cling to, then we have nothing to fear in this world. And Paul knew, he understood for all of these churches, there was going to come a time when they were going to face persecution. They were going to face difficulty and trial and challenge. And he knew the most important thing that they would need was to be secure in the truth of who God is. Be secure in those things in order to carry them through those moments. Prayer in the Christian life comes from an inner desire. It's the overflow of a heart that is filled with the Spirit. 
The first thing that I want you to notice that Paul says that he prays for the church at Philippi is that he prays, number one, that they would be living with love. Living with love. Look at verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So the first thing that Paul emphasizes here, you might think that the first thing that he would emphasize would be a clarity of scriptural knowledge or a clarity of theology. But Paul emphasizes first here, love. Because, brothers and sisters, love is at the center of what it means to be a Christian. Love is at the center of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Remember what John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Later on in that passage, he would say, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. So what does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian, it means to love. Now, we have to kind of clarify these things because in our world, and we've talked about this over and over again, as Americans, we have one word for love. It doesn't matter what you're talking about, whether you love baseball or you love your children, we use the same word, love. Now, we hopefully understand that there's a difference in those two contexts, but we have one word for love, and that's all we have. But now, in the original Greek language, they had several words for love, and the word that Paul uses here when he talks about love is that agape love that refers to a, a kind of love that is above all others. It's the God love. It's a love that is, is not judgmental in the sense of it doesn't judge by appearance, but it looks at the true attitudes of the heart. It's the love that God expresses towards us, and it's the love that we are to express towards others. Love is where we have to begin. Because if we don't have love, we don't have God. We can have all the theological knowledge in the world. We can be experts on every area of the Scripture. But if we do not have love, we have an empty faith. Because remember, what did Jesus even say when they were, he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Because it's out of love that we obey these two commands. And these two commands were just a fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. The first four being about our relationship with God, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The remaining six being about our relationship with one another, with mankind. So if we are expressing those things in love, we will be obedient to God. So Paul starts with the idea of love. Now we can understand from he the way that he writes this. He says, I pray that your love may abound. So what we can understand first is that they already had a testimony of love. They were already practicing this in a very real way. But what he desired for them was that they would not stay where they were, but they would continue growing in this Christ-like love. Matthew Henry said, love is the fulfilling both of the law and the gospel. He says, observe, those who abound much in any grace have still need more to abound more and more because there is still something wanting in it and we are imperfect in our best attainment. Brothers and sisters, no no matter how much love we are showing one another, we still have room to do more. No matter how much we love one another, we still have room to grow in our love. And this is Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi. He says, I see what you're doing, and it rejoices in my heart that you're loving one another in such a God-honoring way. He said, but my prayer for you is that it may abound more and more. We have to understand that Christian love is a love of choice by the one who is loving others. We have to make a choice to love one another. Because in our sinful hearts, inside of this flesh that is still tainted by sin in this world, sometimes we're not going to feel like loving one another. Because our emotions are subject to volatility. They go up and they go down. But we have to make a decision that we're going to love. And and listen, our love is not based on the response of the one whom we express our love to. We are to love one another regardless if the person we are expressing that love to expresses anything back to us. If they express love back to us, we rejoice in that. But you know what's going to happen? Sometimes they're going to express hatred back to us. This is the reason why Jesus said, what to love your enemies. It's a decisive love. Because this love is intended to show that we understand what is expected of us by God. 
So Paul sees the testimony of their love, and so he hopes for them. He has this grand hope that their love would abound more and more. That word abound means to overflow. It talks about somebody pouring a liquid into a cup and reaching the top and not stopping, but just continuing to pour, and the cup just overflowing as it just continues to be filled more and more. And this was Paul's prayer oftentimes for the churches. In 1 Thessalonians, he tells them that he prays that the Lord may cause you to increase and abound in love one for another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Because you see, this love is not just a love that's focused on one particular area. It's focused on God. It's a love that's focused on God that we may be obedient to Him and do the things that He has called us to do, that we may recognize His expectations for us. But it's also a love that is focused on the body of Christ, that we may express this love in so many different ways, in our kindness, in our hospitality, in our charity, in our generosity. But it's also a love that's expressed towards those who are outside of Christ. Because it's a love that demonstrates that we go out and we share the gospel. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest ways that we can show love to a lost and dying world is not by sending money. One of the greatest ways that we show love to a lost and dying world is by the taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Because money is only temporary. Now, I'm not saying that we don't do those things. I think it's important to do those things. I think it's important to, 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 to work in those types of ministries. But the most important thing that we can do is to take the gospel because it is what has the most long-lasting impact. So Paul's prayer here is that this love would abound that it would continue to grow and not just stop, but to continue to overflow. Because notice he says, not just may abound, but may abound still more and more. He wants to see this love growing in such a way that there is no definition of excess. There cannot be too much love when it comes to the Christian life. We cannot love too much. Now, we can love the wrong way, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but we cannot love too much as Christians. Because the danger is in living in this world is not that we would love too much, but that we would love too little and that we would wane in our love that God has put in us. Remember, that was the problem with the church at Ephesus. They lost their first love. They lost their focus on God. And so because of that, everything else fell apart. And Jesus even had warned of this because he said that people's love would grow cold as lawlessness increased. So the temptation for us, brothers and sisters, is not that we're going to find a place that we're loving too much, but the temptation is going to be for us that we grow cold in our love one for another. This love is a struggle because of our flesh. And we have to work towards doing what God has called us to do here. We don't just wake up every morning with that love in our hearts. We have to remind ourselves daily of the expectation that God has for us. But when we really understand what it is that we're doing, there's a natural desire that will begin to come up inside of us. I want you to think back for a moment, those of you in the room who are married. I want you to think about back to when you were first dating your spouse. You know, there's something happens inside the heart of a human being when you love someone. You desire to know about that person. You desire to know their likes and their dislikes. You want to know what makes them happy and what makes them sad, what, what they enjoy doing, what they don't enjoy doing. And so part of the time as somebody is dating another person is you're spending this time learning who they are, and because you love them, you want to do that. You want to learn about them. You desire to know about them. Maybe you're in this room this morning. Maybe you've ever started a new hobby. Maybe it's fishing or uh, doing some type of craft work or woodworking. And you, you really have gotten into it. And because you've gotten into it, you're watching YouTube videos and you're reading books and you're going places where they do that kind of thing and you're watching it be done by a, a master craftsman. Why? Because you have a love for it. And because you have a love for it, it creates a desire in you to know everything you can about that particular subject. If we love Jesus, we should have that same type of desire to spend time in His Word, to spend time in prayer, to know as much as we can about who Jesus is. And let me remind you this morning that the knowledge of God is inexhaustible. 
We cannot come to a place where we know everything there is to know spiritually or theologically about who God is. God is always, there's always more that we can learn. So my question for you this morning is, what do you love? And the easy way to determine that is, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or speak out loud this morning, but think back about the past week, about the past month, and look at your calendar of time. Because where you have spent the majority of your time will tell you everything you need to know about what you truly love in your life. And so Paul is praying that their love would abound more and more, that it would continue to grow, that their desire for God and their desire to know more about Him would just overwhelmingly erupt in this continuous expression of Christ-like love. But notice this love does something in the heart of the believer because he says, I want to pray that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment. This is the results of this overflowing love, that they would both have knowledge and discernment. Because this love is not a mere sentimental kind of love. This is what we're so accustomed to in our culture is sentimental love. Because we use the word so flippantly in talking about different things. And when you hear somebody talking about love, oftentimes you think of this sentimental kind of love. But the Christ-like love, the love that is exhibited here, is a love that is willing to speak the truth. It's a love that is willing to confront. And it's a love that is willing to hurt the feelings of someone in order that their soul might be healed. This is very contrary to the world that we live in today. People would not believe that love could be expressed in such a way that it might cause hurt towards someone. And the best example I've ever heard of how this plays out is to imagine that you are sick and you go to a doctor. And the doctor, through doing a series of tests, discovers that you have cancer. Now, the doctor has a decision to make, right? He can come back into the room and tell you everything's okay and send you home and you'll be happy and you'll be happy with the doctor and everything will be just fine, right? Well, no, it won't be just fine. You may feel good about yourself. You may feel good about the relationship with your doctor, but everything's not going to be okay. The doctor has to come into the room and he has to sit you down and he has to speak truth and love and saying what you have is very deadly and dangerous. And I know this is not what you want to hear, but here's what has to happen in order for this correction to be made that you might survive this. And the doctor doesn't do that because he hates his patient. He does that because he loves his patient. And as we go out into a world that is filled with the cancer of sin. We have to be willing to look at people and say, here's the problem that you have. And here's the only hope for you to be forgiven and for you to be healed. You have to sometimes speak the difficult things, to speak the hard things, to speak the true things in order that people might be transformed. And so this is a kind of love that has this type of knowledge, the understanding of what the Scriptures say. Because this word knowledge here is a complete kind of knowledge. It's a whole knowledge. It's a knowledge that is gained by experience. And so how does someone experience this knowledge? How does someone gain this knowledge? Well, it comes from God's Word. Paul is encouraging the believers at Philippi to study and to know the things of God in order that they might understand His principles. And Paul here is not encouraging them just to a a list of factual information. He's not just saying memorize these things and know these facts, but it's a kind of knowledge that once you understand it and once you realize what it is, it leads us to a life of devotion and obedience. Because it does us no good to know what the Bible says if we do not put it into practice. Paul told the Corinthian church, he says, Do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. To the church at Ephesus, he told them, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we're called as Christians to be careful and wise in our thinking. To avoid being foolish when it comes to understanding the will of God. So in order to do this, we have to be able to put the work in. 
We have to be willing to spend time in God's Word and to study His Word to understand the knowledge and the truth of who He is and what He has told us to do. We have to be thinking Christians. We have to be knowledgeable Christians. As I was thinking about this, I I was struck by the fact that this is really counterintuitive to what we're taught in our culture today. Uh, We talked about it in Sunday school this morning that you know, 150 years ago, in school, children were challenged in their instruction to be critical thinkers, to evaluate things, to look at the truth of the world, and to look at the truth of Scripture, and to compare the two things, and to think critically about those kinds of matters. But we don't teach critical thinking, by and large, in our society anymore. In fact, what we teach people is, listen, we have all the information, we'll give it to you, you just believe it, and let it stop there. Because that's what we're saturated with. Listen, I'm very appreciative for the internet, and I'm very appreciative for certain aspects of social media, but by and large, what the internet and social media have done to our culture is created a group and a a generation of people who have no idea how to think critically about matters. All they know to do is just listen for somebody else to give them an answer, and then they just take that answer as straight fact without ever investigating it for themselves. And so what Paul is here is encouraging him to do. He's like, don't just know knowledge, don't just know things, but have it studied out. Have it spent time in God's Word, understanding the truth of who He is and what He has called you to do. The desire of Paul was for the spiritual maturity and knowledge of the faith. And this is a, not a, a knowledge of everything that there is to know, but a knowledge that is full and complete. It's a knowledge that is the most essential things. But Paul doesn't just pray for knowledge here. He also prays for discernment. This discernment word is not just to know the principles that God teaches those things, but how to evaluate those principles. How to discern what is is good and what is evil. How to balance those things out. And brothers and sisters, the reason that we do this is because as believers in Christ, this is not an option for us. The kind of love that Paul prays here for the church at Philippi is not something that we can just consider as believers, but is something that we must do. I read that passage earlier from 1 John, but Jesus makes it even more clear. He says, A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus makes it very clear that the way the world knows that we are disciples of Christ is because we express that love and we live out that love in our own life. That we practice that love, that we demonstrate that love in everything that we do, and that we take the knowledge that God has given us and we are able with discernment to look and to understand what is good and what is bad and to hold to those things that are good. Secondly, I want you to notice Paul's prayer for the church was not just that they would be living with love, but they would be living with excellence. Living with excellence. How do these things flesh out in our lives? Look at verse 10. He says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. This is a very personal request because he says, so that you, he's he's talking of the individual believers there that every one of them would have to do this in their own life. He says, I want you to be able to approve the things that are excellent. That word approval means to be tested or to be scrutinized. So it's talking about recognizing something that is genuine after inspection. So Paul says this kind of love that grows in you, with this knowledge and the discernment comes from it, then allows you to look at the things and to test them and to know what real truth is. Paul here is not just talking about the idea of knowing good from evil or right from wrong. Because even lost people can know that. Because God has put a conscience inside of every person, and that conscience bears witness to those things which are good and those things which are evil. Now, people can choose to suppress their conscience, but even lost people can tell the difference between good and evil and right from wrong. What Paul here is praying for them that they would understand the things that are the best things. The things that are the higher things above the lower things. To discern what is the best thing to put their hands to. To discern what is the, the, the most beneficial things 
to put their hands to. And what is the best? Is the things that are best or the things that God has instructed us by? Sometimes we have to consider, sometimes something, we might be facing a situation where we have to make a decision. Should I do this thing or this other thing? And neither one of them are sinful. They're both good. But which one is going to be most beneficial? Which one is going to be most spiritually advantageous? And so we do those things. When we look at the world and we're trying to determine how we're going to live out our life, we choose the things that are higher above the things that are lower. But again, this emphasizes that we have to put the work in. That idea of approving, again, is the idea of testing. It talks about the the testing of the purity of metals when a metal would be put to the heat to try it and to see what is good in it and what is bad in it. So every one of these things that Paul talks about in the love, the knowledge, the discernment, this approval of the things that are excellent, all the way down to the end of this section of Scripture, alludes to the idea of the work that is involved in the Christian life in order to be able to do these things. But we cannot do it in our own strength. We're called to put the work in, but the power that comes to that is by the power of the Spirit. Because the way that we approve the things which are excellent is by having a knowledge of God's Word. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, He reveals to us the truth of God through His Word that we can understand those things. So there's an evaluation that has to take place because Paul says the things that are excellent. Because truth because true love reveals and supports the truth. And we cannot allow ourselves to be shaped by our emotions. This is the danger when it comes to love. Because oftentimes we can be swayed one way or the other by our emotions. Remember what Paul told the Roman church, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul's talking about approving the things that are excellent here to the church at Philippi and to the church at Romans. He tells them to know those things which are good, acceptable, and perfect. We have to not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. To have the mind of Christ in order to understand the things that are excellent. He would tell the church at Ephesus about talking to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And over and over again, we would see the Scripture tell us to examine those things and hold fast to those things that are good. To not believe every spirit, but to test the spirits to say whether they are from God. To know the things that are good and excellent above the things which are not. It takes work. It takes consideration. And it takes the knowledge and discernment that Paul had already prayed for. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, when he went off to Oxford, his mother, a very godly lady, looked at him and she said this, Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures the sense of God, or takes off the delight for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin. End quote. She's encouraging him to look for the things that are excellent and to approve those things. This calls us to a higher level of Christian living. And a lot of people don't like to hear that. A lot of people don't like to hear the idea of Christians being called to a life of holiness because they assume that that's being called to legalism or Christian perfectionism or sinlessness. And we're not saying that at all. There's not a person in this room who is sinless or whoever will be sinless. The only person who was sinless is Jesus Christ. There's not a person in this room who will ever obtain to Christian perfection in this life. All of us will. One day when we die, whether it's by the return of Jesus, by our our own death. But we are called to live holy lives. We're called to strive to be as holy as we can. Jesus said, uh, the scripture says, be ye holy as I am holy. It's not a foreign concept to Christianity. And to do those things and to understand that, we have to know those things which are excellent, and that comes by knowledge and discernment, by understanding the will of God that comes from the foundation of love. Third thing I want you to notice in this passage is Paul calls the church to be 
Not just living with love and living with excellence, but also to be living with integrity. He says, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now that word sincere is, is, is also the idea of purity. And really what it means is to be tested by the light of the sun. Now, it's interesting, in the time in which Jesus lived, in which Paul lived, uh, they used a lot of clay pots for different, different matters. They used them to cook with, to drink out of, and all kinds of things. And because of the materials they used, oftentimes, sometimes there would be a crack in the pot that was being made. And so if a, if a pot was cracked, it was, it was worthless. It just needed to be thrown away because there's nothing you could do to repair it. But what some people would do is they would take that pot and they would fill that crack with a, a hard type of wax. And then they would put the glaze over top of the pot, and when the pot was fired, you couldn't see the crack and you couldn't see the wax. But what would happen is if you put something hot in that vessel, it would melt the wax, and then the vessel would begin to leak. And so what people would do is they would take that vessel and they would hold it up to the light of the sun, and in the sun you could see the difference in the contrast between the clay and the wax inside the pot. And it enabled you to see the faults and the failures of that piece of pottery. And this is the description that Paul is talking about here. He says that we may be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. He's talking about being investigated, to be pure in the light of God. So we're to take our lives and to hold them up to the light of God's Word and let Him evaluate us for any faults that there might be in our own heart. Because God has called us to turn away from the things that we used to be and tune to the things that are new. That word purity, that word sincere also means to be free from falsehood, not mixed with error or worldliness. Because we cannot live the Christian life with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. And this is oftentimes how people want to live. They want to live the Christian life when saying, well, I still want to do some of these things, right? Right? Maybe there's not a specific scripture that speaks. It's like, well, it's like I still want to do some of this, but then I still also want to be to have the benefits of being in a relationship with Christ. God says, no. He says, you've got to expose yourself to the light of my word because I want you to be sincere and pure, not mixed with any type of falsehood, not mixed with any kind of worldliness. What God is looking for is Christians who are pure and not Christians who are just plated with righteousness or plated with love. And what I mean by that is, you know what it means. You go to the store, you can go down to a jewelry store and you can buy a ring that is gold plated or you can buy a ring that is solid gold. And which one is the more viable of the two? The one that is solid gold, right? Because the one that is gold plated is not really all that pure. It's just got it on the outside. Paul says that as we be sincere and blameless, it also speaks to the idea not only of having our lives contrasted to the light of God's Word, but it also speaks to how we live those things out in this life. Because our life should be evident to the world in both character and conduct. People should be able to look at us and know that we are Christians by the way that we live out our lives and that we live our lives in such a way to be untainted from the world. Now, brothers and sisters, there's no way to live in this life and not experience some kind of, 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 of worldly influence on us. There's always going to be some things there, but we can live our lives in such a way that by our best ability, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to avoid that as much as we can. We can't change what somebody does to us, right? When we're out in public, we can't change what is, is put on the billboards or what is put up in a store. We can't change what people are saying around us. We can't change those things. But we can choose what we watch on the television when we turn it on at night. And we can choose what we fill our ears with. We can choose the way that we speak and the way that we conduct ourselves. And so Paul tells us that we should live our lives in such a way in order to be sincere and blameless. that we would be tested by the Spirit and that we would reveal those things in the way that it fleshes out because that word blameless there speaks about the idea of stumbling. So not only is our life being evaluated to look for those things that we need to correct and look for those things that need to be changed that we might be pure before God, but He also does not want us to be a stumbling block. 
Now, when we talk about stumbling blocks in the Christian life, oftentimes we think first of of being a stumbling block to others, and that is included in what Paul's talking about here. But it also includes not just the idea of causing others to stumble, but also the idea of not stumbling ourselves. We want to live our lives in such a way to not cause an injury to somebody else and not cause them to stumble. Now, I think sometimes this gets carried too far. I think sometimes people use this idea of a stumbling block and and, and it can almost sometimes veer into a legalistic type of mindset. But we need to be very careful to evaluate our lives and to consider that sometimes the things that we do can cause others to stumble in their faith. Paul talked about this in several different passages. One of the most obvious ones in the New Testament church was meat sacrificed to idols. In the Gentile culture, there was meat that was used in the pagan temples that was sacrificed to various deities and gods all over, uh, all over the region. And Paul had no issue with, with eating that meat. He said, it's fine because those gods don't exist. They're sacrificing it to something that doesn't exist. There's no problem. If you want to eat the meat, eat the meat. But in the Jewish culture, it was very hard for them to move past that. And so Paul tells them, he says, if, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. He says, I'm willing to lay that down if it's going to be problematic for them. So if Paul was going to sit down with a Gentile Christian and they wanted to eat meat sacrificed to idols, Paul was fine doing that. But he wasn't going to take that meat and go down the street to a Jewish believer's house and feed it to them because he knew that it would cause them to stumble in their own spiritual walk. And we have to evaluate those things. Because sometimes things are very crystal clear in the Scripture of this thing is a sin and this thing is not a sin. But sometimes there are things in a believer's life which because of your background, because of your experience, sometimes God may convict you about a certain thing that for you to do it would be a sin, but for this brother over here to do it would not be a sin. And you have to listen to the Holy Spirit. You have to listen to what the Spirit is telling you about those things. Because Paul tells us all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So Paul says, I want you to be sincere, but I also want you to be blameless, not causing others to stumble. To live our life in such a way to not cause injury to someone else by the way that we live out our faith, by the way that we live out our life. But Paul's also talking about the idea of not stumbling ourselves as to fall into sin or to moral failure. We need to make sure that we live our lives with a blameless conscience before others and before God. To live our life in such a way that we are continually seeking after Him so that we do not stumble in our own regard. It's very easy. As I stand here this morning, I can think of of numerous individuals that I have known, and not just the big people on TV, but individuals I've known who I went to Bible college with, who I have done ministry with in the past, who did not listen to what the Scripture says here, and who have fallen into moral failure, fallen into sin, and stumbled along the way. And Paul says we do this because it's the idea of endurance. He says to do it until the day of Christ Jesus. One day the Lord is going to return And when He returns, we're going to stand before God to give an account of our lives. Now those outside of Christ will be judged according to their sins. Their judgment, God's judgment will fall upon them and they will be cast into hell forever. We stand before that judgment seat and God will grant us the righteousness of Christ. But there still is yet another judgment where we will give an account for all of our things that we've done. We'll still have to give an account for them. We don't have to bear the punishment for them, but we still have to give an account. And so Paul says, we want to live our lives in such a way as to shorten that list as much as we can, right? We want to live our lives such in a way that when we stand before God, we have more to rejoice about in that moment than we have to be sorrowful about. We want to live our lives in a committed attitude of sincerity, of purity, and blamelessness. I want you to notice next that Paul says not only should they be living with integrity, but they should be living with fruit. He says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Now, they've already been filled, 
Because that word used there means the present results of a past action. They've already been filled with the fruit of righteousness. That came when they became a Christian. And the Holy Spirit indwelt in them and gave them the fruit of the Spirit. And it's evidenced by that producing it in their life. Producing fruit for God is not a singular idea, but a plural idea. And this is what it means to be a Christian. That we live out the Christian life by producing fruits of righteousness, by producing spiritual fruit. We're all familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that's not a choose-your-own-adventure list. When, when Paul writes out the fruit of the Spirit, he's not saying, okay, just pick the ones that you like the best or the ones that are the most close to you and you practice those fruits of the Spirit. No, the fruit of the Spirit is all of those things and we should be manifesting all those things in our spiritual life. We should be demonstrating love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in everything that we do. The Christian life is a fruitful life. We cannot get away from this understanding. The the psalmist, when he writes in Psalm chapter 1, he says of the righteous man that he will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. The passage that Pastor Wesley read this morning, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. Because it's easy to proclaim Christ with our mouths, but it's much more difficult to live a life that evidences that work of Christ. James warns us to not just be hearers of the Word, but to also be doers of the Word. If there is a person who claims the name of Christ, but that person is not bearing fruit, it helps us to understand that that person is most likely not in Christ at all. Now again, we're not judging the size of the fruit. We're not judging the amount of the fruit. Because every one of us in this room are in different places in our walk with God. And some of us may be producing large amounts of fruit. And some of us may be producing small amounts of fruit. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are producing fruit for God. Because Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And listen, and so prove to be My disciples. How do we prove that we're a disciple? Is that we are bearing fruit in Him. You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So to be a Christian means to be bearing fruit, and it's a fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit that comes, he says, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come, and because He has accomplished what He has accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection, in His ascension back to heaven, in His sending of the Holy Spirit, now we are filled with the Spirit. And it's by the Spirit that we can do the work that God is calling us to do here. The fruit of of righteousness is the fruit of the Holy Spirit living in and operating in our lives. His life is being lived out through us. Paul says we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. By the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, we are living these things out in a practical way as we bear the fruit of the Spirit in our daily lives. Final thing I want you to notice that Paul prays for this church is not only that they would live with fruit, but that they would be living with purpose. Notice the last part of that passage, to the glory and the praise of God. The Christian life, evidenced by love that abounds, knowledge and discernment of His Word and His will, approving the things that are excellent in order that we can be pure and holy and blameless until Christ's return, The evidence, again, of the fruit of righteousness, all of this is not to the glory and praise of ourselves, but to the glory and praise of God. 
Nothing that we do in this Christian life should be driven by the motivation that we might receive honor and glory, but should be driven by the fact that He is to receive all the honor and glory. Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may what? See your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It should be our desire to live our lives in such a way as to not just honor God in our, on our own heart, but to honor God in such a way or to, to honor God that others see it and they bring praise and honor to God. That they see demonstrated in our lives something that is so radically countercultural that the only thing that they can do is say, that must be the Spirit of God operating in their life. That must be the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And this is not just in grandiose things. This is not just in these, in these large-scale things that we could think of, because what did Paul tell the Corinthians? He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. What this tells us is that our motivation to bring glory and honor to God should be accomplished even in the most minuscule things that we do in this life. We might think about glorifying God and think, oh, well, I'm going to go on a mission trip and I'll glorify and honor God. Or I'm going to go out on the streets and I'm going to glorify and honor God. Brothers and sisters, we should be just as concerned about glorifying and honoring God on a mission trip as we should be when we're driving down the road in our car and we're by ourselves and someone cuts us off. Are we glorifying and honoring God in that moment? Or when someone says something to us, and inside, the, something begins to rise up inside of us in anger. We have to, in that moment, make a decision to glorify and honor God and not to glorify and honor self and to satisfy our pride. It's not for us, but it's all for Him. He says, to the glory and praise of God, because everything that we do as Christians has been purposed for the work of God. Peter says that as living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Down a few verses, he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Paul says, You live your life in such a way that even those who hate you can't do anything but praise God because of how you live. To live our life in such a way to the glory and praise of God. This is what we are called to do as believers. So I would question you this morning. Think about your own life. Think about your Christian practice. What does your love look like this morning? What is your love for God, your love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, your love for those outside? What does it look like this morning? Is your love abounding more and more? in this life. If it's not, I know the source. In just a few moments, you take the time when we pray, you go to God and say, God, help me to be abounding more and more in love. That I would know that agape love, practicing it in a real and a practical way. But I would ask you, ask you this this morning, what does your knowledge and discernment look like? Has that love manifested in such a way in your life that you have a real desire to know God's Word and to spend time in His Word? Are you desirous of that? Because let me be honest this morning. If we have no desire to spend time in God's Word, if we have no desire to pray, if we have no desire to know God more today than we did yesterday, then something is deeply wrong in our Christian understanding. Something is deeply wrong in our spiritual condition. Let me also ask you this. Do you know how to approve the things that are excellent? Are you living your life in such a way as to be pure 
and blameless, without stumbling, without causing others to stumble, without stumbling yourself as you wait for the day of Christ's return. And are you filled with the fruit of righteousness? Are you demonstrating those fruits of the Spirit in your own life? Are you showing those things? Are you bearing fruit in your life? Look, today, I think of the passage that Jesus talks about, the one who planted a vineyard. And he goes back and did not find any fruit on it. And he says, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. He says, cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? He said, he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, this year too, and I'll dig around it and put fertilizer in it. If it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. I have a grapevine in the back of my property. It's been there for a while, and at first it was really small, and so it never really did anything. So I kept watering it, put some fertilizer on it from time to time, and it grew and it grew. And so this year, this huge grapevine, but no fruit. Nothing on it. Now, all this effort of looking at it, what's the bit of bears different? So it does no good to me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut it up. I'm going to dig it up out of the ground because it's pointless. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. Brothers and sisters, you can come to church and you can sing songs and you can memorize Bible verses. But if you're not bearing the fruit, just a waste of time. If you're not bearing the fruit, it's pointless. And the only way that you can be bearing the fruit is by knowing who Christ is and by being in Him. And that is the evidence that you are in Christ is that you are bearing fruit. So if you're here this morning and you look at your own life and you say, Pastor Chris, I I don't know that I can see fruit in my own life. The first thing that I would compel you to do this morning is go to the Lord and make sure things are right with your soul. Make sure that you know that you are in Christ because if you are in Christ, you should be bearing some type of fruit. And again, sometimes it's going to be small. A small tree bears a small amount of fruit. A large tree bears a large amount of fruit. We're not talking about the amount. We're talking about the existence of it. And if there is no fruit, there's deep concern. But my prayer for us this morning is that we would live our Christian lives with these characteristics, that we would see this blueprint of prayer, and that we would do two things. Number one, that we would pray that God would allow us to live our life according to this blueprint, but that secondly, that we would commit to one another that we will pray these things for each other that we would pray that all of us would live our lives in such a way that Paul has laid out here for the church at Philippi. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that you give us. And Lord, we realize that we can oftentimes fall so short in some of these areas, and we pray, God, that you would help us to be resolved to do the things that you have called us to do. Father, help us to be Christians who love. Help us to be Christians who desire the truth of your word. Help us to be Christians who are growing and are bearing a fruit as we await for your return. Lord, guide us and direct us in everything that we do, that we may honor and please you, that it may all be done to the glory and the honor and the praise of your name. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name.